This is the Vorpal Network. VorpalNetwork.com This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Continue Magazine, a quarterly magazine for gamers of all types, Noble Knight Games, where out of print is available again, and listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon store. Hi, this is Brian R. James, the better James brother. And you're listening to The Tone. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley. In this episode, number 205, we're going to delve deep into the underdark of northern Faerun to spy on the drow of Menzo Branzen. Oh, you struggled and hesitated with that name. Well, because we heard, like, how many different ways <laughs> two, of Two or three different ways of pronouncing it, yeah. So in this episode, as, as uh, we've discussed, uh, we're going to be discussing the new book, Minzo Baranzan, City of Intrigue, and we're going to be specifically talking to the authors of the book, uh, Brian James and Eric Mingi. Uh, a recent release from Watsi came out, uh, what, August of t- 2012? Yeah, I got my copy at, at Gen Con. Very good. Yeah, I did too. Um, so this book details the city of Minzer Branzen, which was originally featured in the Driss novels and it has become an iconic part of Drow and D&D lore, as well as Forgotten Realms lore. Um, the product is effectively systemless, although it, it's done in sort of the formatting and style of 4th edition and has those sort of logos and things on it. Uh, but no actual 4th edition mechanics are in this book. It is in fact, or in fact, the only mechanics that are really in the book are self-contained things created to explain things and do things within the book itself that could be used in any edition. Um, but before we visit with Brian R. James and Eric Mingi, Tracy, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> who didn't talk at all during the interview, uh, what do you think of the book? So, on one hand, I really like it. I like having... I think they give a lot of ideas of how you can use the lore. It well, for one, it takes a bunch of lore that's in tons of different novels and gaming products and everywhere else and puts it in one place. So uh, I really like it for that sort of thing. Even if I don't use the lore in here, just seeing how it gets organized and the types of things that uh, they, they write about, um, I think is going to help my game yeah, a lot. And it's worth noting to people that um, when you talk about lore, it actually goes through different eras of Minzer Branzan from its founding up to the the fourth edition post spell plague Minzer Branzan and, and everything in between. So you get a lot of history of, of the region <laughs> and of the city um, and adv- advice in running games in each of those eras as well. Right. And one thing I love to do in my games is to have that sort of history in there. So uh, like sometimes when I create a, a dungeon or, or a building just like in real life the building uh, older buildings have gone through multiple uses a lot of times i do the same sort of things in my games so seeing uh how they organize that and and go through the the eras of uh the building of the the city i think is really good for me and particularly someone who's still i mean i'm not that new anymore but i'm still relatively new to lore in dnd so uh so i like that part mm-hmm. uh, no, and i and i found the places where they actually gave like one of the one of the i think it's really really lore heavy it doesn't always help us understand how to use that lore in, in mm-hmm. constructing a campaign but the places where it does give sort of general advice is actually really good i really like the section um that brian james wrote um dealing with uh intrigue and how to use intrigue in a campaign because that's really hard to do yeah. Uh, and th- he gives some very practical advice of, look, create these factions, or in this case, use the factions in this book, and here's how you can sort of implement and use the different factions, but d- and, and at the same time not go over, over the top and overboard and, and to the point that it becomes just so complex that nobody knows what's going on. Um, so I, f- I feel like he gave some really good practical advice that's useful in any game if you want to use Intrigue. Right. And, and I kind of want to take... The, the house section, because you can even, they, they gave rules for building your own house and thinking about the, the, the portions of, uh, I guess you call it, I call it house, is that what they call it in here? I forget. Um, but how to build that, how in favor and military and stuff feeds into the power that you would have in the society, I kind of want to take that and I want to take uh, 
the Song of Ice and Fire RPG because mm-hmm. that also has house building and kind of combine them together sure. to, to create something uh, that that maybe isn't drought specific but has that that sort of building um, component to it because one of the nice things about building a house is that it, it gives the players a chance to talk about what sorts of things they want to see in their game and gives them some control if the if the DM wants them to over kind of the narrative or and and how the the campaign is going to evolve. Because if if you if you build a house that's more about commerce or 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 military, the the campaign is probably going to be more about one of those two topics. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And I and I this is one of those books um and I mentioned this a little bit in the in the interview as well that that's gonna it's gonna go on my shelf. I'm not gonna immediately lose, use this book, but it's gonna go on my shelf. And then someday I'm totally gonna use this book. It's it's, it's timeless in its usefulness, mm-hmm. um, and even more so than a lot of previous books. Like I, I go, I've you know I play a lot of Forgotten Realms games, right? And I will oftentimes go to my second and third edition books just to pull out little bits of lore and information. Uh, but there's also a lot of mechanics in those books. This one is just all lore and information. It's really text heavy. It's it's a it's a book that I found difficult to just sit down and read cover to cover. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a book that I feel like I could very easily put on my shelf and and run an entire Minzo Branzan game someday. Right. Um, you know, I, in fact, I heard of um, Eric, um, Eric, 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 Scott Debbie. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eric Scott Debbie was was tweeting recently about his some ideas he had using this book and actually telling doing one campaign that spans all of the four eras. You know. Uh, and so you do a little, uh, several little sessions in this one, and then and then several little sessions in that one. And what you did in the first one, you know, affects what happens in the second era. And then you do, you, you know, you jump through the entire history, and you get to use so many different bits uh, that way. Uh, and, and that sounds like a really cool idea for a campaign. It's just not something that I'm in a place to really want to do right now. Right. But I could see myself pulling this out in five years after I finish another big campaign and want to do some something shorter for a bit, and using this and and basing it all off of this book. Right. Yeah. And I. I think too the station and house building things are things we could pull out and run in other campaigns. And this, mm-hmm. but I think I feel I hope, and I think we talk about this a little bit with uh, with Brian and Eric, that they produce more content as to how exactly to to take something like the tier system of station, and and make that come out in the game. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe if you're doing a more commerce game in in a regular realm city, uh, it. it it influences how much you pay for things or yeah. uh, what, what types of resources are easily available to you or something yeah. like that from different from different factions. It actually reminds me a little bit of, of in older editions of the game, there was sort of this built-in thing where in some classes, if you reach certain levels, you achieve certain different titles. Right. And there were benefits and, and consequences that came along with that. This is a little bit more sophisticated way of doing the same concept. In right. that, in that you're you're gaining prestige and influence, and I, yeah, I would have also liked to see some more of the the causes and effects in, involved in that. But at the same time, it builds in. You know, you're just not automatically gaining station as you gain levels. But there's things that you're doing as you're at going through your adventures that are going to influence your station and standing. That that can be useful. I mean, in any campaign, right? I mean, you right. could you could modify that to be you know because it's always difficult sometimes as a DM to know. Okay, they're getting more famous and they're doing all these adventures and these all these things are important. How does that change the way people treat them? You know? Right. This gives you a mechanical system to to really grasp that concept. Right. And, and it helps too with things like after a certain point, the number of gold pieces that you get as treasure gets oftentimes gets just so big that it doesn't make sense to to do the fine tuned uh like keeping track of each individual gold piece and particularly then being like well you actually don't have quite enough to get a dagger maybe at a certain level certain types of mundane goods you just don't care about anymore you just get them if you want them Mm -hmm. i know for you kind of did that after a certain level of mundane goods were were okay to just buy i don't know i'm just throwing ideas out there but uh and then the things too like they have the worth modifiers and the big thing about the worth modifiers is they can really start driving uh, how players role play, yeah, and and the decisions that the characters are making. And so I think it would be really cool to t- to have to talk about that more 
in in sort of a world building exercise mm-hmm. where everyone kind of agrees what types of stuff are, are, are okay or not okay to do in the game. Mm-hmm. Well, and and the, this whole the whole system does that right because there's a mechanical system to dev- decide your station. Right. Uh, if you're upfront about that with your players about the kinds of things that are going to change your station positively or negatively, then it's almost it's it's almost a replacement for a, an alignment sort of system, right? Right. You have this whole thing that's encouraging certain encouraging and discouraging certain behaviors, and 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 they have to make a decision, and you know, and you can modify things that way. And not just the alignment, the uh, old. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, the term you would use for uh, clerics and stuff for following a deity. They often had the list of things that their deity, like you would do or not do for your deity. Okay. Yeah. Their their code of conduct or whatever. Yeah, the code of conduct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but we don't want to go too full in depth. Um, did you have any last statements before we wrap this up? We want to leave most of our time to the interview. Yeah. No. No. That's that's all I had to say. Very good. Then it's time to do, to, to do that. Uh, but first, we need to remind everyone about Continue Magazine. It's our it's a quarterly gaming magazine that covers all styles of gaming. Their latest issue deals a lot with uh, larger gaming culture, its interaction with laws and governments, and gives some thoughts about where the state of gaming is going. Uh, we also have it on some authority that issue four will feature D&D heavily, so people look, should look out for that. For entire generations of people now, gaming is as much a part of the fabric of their reality as television, films, books, music, and any other form of entertainment medium. Continue is a magazine for the gaming community, the global gaming community. Not just video and computer games, but board games, card games, role-playing games, alternate reality games, and anything that falls into the category of humans engaging to have fun. A celebration of gaming. Everything we love about this mad entertainment sector. Continue Magazine at www.continuemag.com. And we're back, and we're here talking with Brian R. James and Eric Mingay. Did I say your name right? Almost. Oh, I meant to check ahead of time, and I didn't. It's uh, Mingy. Mingy. All right. Eric Mingy. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Thanks. Or in Brian's, in Brian's case, I think, welcome back. You've been on once or twice, right? Twice, yes. Twice, excellent. All right, and these two gentlemen are on because uh, their names are on the cover of Minzo Baranzan, City of Intrigue. Yes. Insert applause. All right, so Minzo Baranzan uh, came out about, a, what, last month? A couple months ago maybe now? Uh, August. Yeah. Uh, at Gen Con, actually. Right on. So uh, late August. So it came out in August, and that usually means that you've been working on it, or you started working on it at least a year before that. Does that sound about right? Yeah. When did we start? Last October, I believe. Uh, well, you started September? working easily two months before I did. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they approached us when? Early September? Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. And you were busy. You started working on it for uh, um, about two weeks after that, and then I was on another project and had to escape. It was the project that would not die, um, and I didn't get over to it till October. So we turned it in December. Yep, early December. And so this is all written by the two of you. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> Yeah, it's a primarily the initial draft was written by Eric and myself, um, but the finished product is obviously touched by editors and in-house developers. Sure. So. And we ourselves received ex- a lots of inspiration from uh, uh, Ed and Bob sure. through the, the old purple Menzo Barons on uh, box set, <laughs> which we were relying on heavy, uh, heavily to update it and to uh, give us inspiration. For those that aren't Realms fans, that's uh, Ed Greenwood and Bob Salvatore. Yes, indeed. That's them. Okay. And also had to read a lot of, reread a lot of his books, uh, uh, Salvatore's books, because uh, we wanted to capture the feel that he had written and to, and we were given a lot more pages than the, uh, the, 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 the old box set had, and so we wanted to get more in depth into the city and try to provide more opportunities for uh, players and DMs alike. So you'll see things that appeared in those earlier books, but 
rewritten, reformatted, and brought up to date so it all fits into this cohesive whole that Brian imagined. Okay. Yeah, because so, the original the original box set is actually this is the twentieth anniversary of that original box set, and not only has a lot of real world time uh, passed, um, but clearly the Forgotten Realms is not a static setting, and its history has um, updated quite a bit over the intervening period. So, so yes, this book talks talks about uh, you know the status of the city as it exists now. Um, in the fourth edition time frame. Um, but also, uh, one of the u- interesting things about this book, um, and that has since been uh, duplicated again in the new Ed Greenwood uh, Forget Realm book that just came out this month, is um, that this uh, Menzo Berenson book was uh, and is edition neutral. Um, so the, 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 the goal that was set forth to us by Chris Perkins was to write a book that could be used um, by fans of the Forgotten Realms in any edition of the game, um, regardless of time period as well. So if you want to set your campaign in you know, a first edition time frame using first edition rules, um, you can easily do that, uh, just the same as somebody that is more familiar with the fourth edition time frame with the Rise of the Underdark uh, themed year content that's going on today. So, so when they approached you, they they basically told you, "We want you to write a Menzer Branzan book that's editionless." What else was part of that initial sort of? This is what the, we want the book to be about. Evil. <laughs> no, well, I'm serious. They, they told us. Yeah, to be it's very evil. true. Yeah, you know, because Wizards, uh, Wizards of the Coast, and TSR um, hasn't over its you know lifetime hasn't produced a lot of books that are focused solely on running evil campaigns you know there's been a a couple like book of vile darkness um but they specifically wanted this book um unlike the original purple box set which is kind of uh guiding towards traditional adventuring groups that visit the city uh they very specifically wanted this book to be centered around campaigns that start in menzo barons um And because Drow are a notoriously evil race, you know, we kind of had to take that into consideration uh, of what it would be like to form an all-evil party um, and how that would affect your campaign. So that was definitely one of the the tenets that was set out from the beginning. So how would that affect my campaign? Because evil campaigns are notoriously hard to pull off because eventually PCs kill each other. Yes. Well, Eric can probably talk a little bit about the station system we put into the game, but there, there, we put some... Well, I'll just let him describe that. Well, the uh, one of the problems I've noticed with evil campaigns is there's no framework. There's no evil society that you're a part of, which puts boundaries and rules around you and limits what you can do, what you can get away with. So when we were setting out for Menzo Berenzon, we were trying to come up with a setting that if people could play dark-hearted drow and it would fit into the society. So what could you get away with? What can't you get away with? What are the structures? I mean, you just can't murder your opponent in front of everybody. Uh, That's... Well, it doesn't make for good gameplay, but uh, it also doesn't really fit with the Drow society, who, which is much more subtle, um, except in, when it erupts into violence. But uh, for the most part, they would much prefer to poison and to backstab and to betray, as opposed to just cutting people down in the middle of the street. So there are rules in Menzo Berenson, and we spend a lot of time in the book going over what those rules are. Uh, and if you violate the rules, the drow are merciless about imposing what they view as justice. So if you go around and start uh, killing indiscriminately, you're going to piss off somebody much more p- powerful than you are, and it's going to come down on you. So you have to work within this evil system to obtain your goals. And to help bring a mechanic into that, because we're all gamers and we like mechanics... Uh, 
we created this station system, um, which was drawn from uh, one of the forewords in the in the Dritz series uh, by Bob Salvatore, which he was quoted again in the Purple Box set from 20 years ago, where station is everything to a drow. And so we said, okay, that's what we want, station. The whole purpose as a drow in this campaign should be to advance your station and become a more powerful drow, not just with uh, your class abilities, but in society. And so there's different tiers. You start off at like basically zero, and you can go up or you can go down. And as you obtain more, well, we decided to go with another uh, term called worth. So by doing drow things, you gain worth as, as a character. And this can be like um, worshipping Lolf gives you worth. Killing enemies of Menzo Berenzon gives you worth. Uh, embarrassing your opponents publicly gives you worth. Betraying somebody and getting away with it gives you worth. And as you collect these worth points, you rise in station. Oh, I should say, since this is Drow Society, uh, female characters start off with a bonus plus 10 and male characters start off with a minus 10 right out of the bat, uh, right out of the gate. So you collect these worth points, and that rises in station. And as you go up in station, you get more and more benefits that uh, Menzo Berenzon can offer you. Excellent. Tracy, I'll let you get a word in. Oh, no, it's okay. I'm not sure. Okay. Now, one thing I had, I think they took out probably because it was uh, a bit risque, was one of the ways you gained worth is, well, to the drow, they're shaped in the image of Lolth, and therefore the drow body is the most beautiful thing in all of creation. So you want to show it off as much as possible, which explains why the drow are always dressed in these ridiculously risque outfits. Because if you don't show it off, you're like, well, what are you hiding? Are you fat or something? And so you will actually start losing losing worth points if you dressed in frumpy sweaters and uh, long uh, long sleeve outfits. But if you wore particularly daring and uh, sensational outfits, you got worth points. That's interesting because the artwork I actually found to be not necessarily following that that yeah. that aesthetic. Yeah, they pulled it out because it was too risque, I guess. I thought it was fun. Well, I mean, you can't walk around naked. That would be uh, that would be too gauche, and you would actually lose worth points for that because then you're trying too hard. You have to go for that perfect line of uh, of uh, in, uh, enticing without being too overt. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to uh, come up with a reason why twenty years of drow uh, artwork was all kind of that style. Okay. So you're trying to sort of explain the previous art? Some ways. Uh, it, we were trying to do a lot of things with the Worth system. Um, explain the uh, previous art. Why do the drow always are pictured in these, these ridiculous outfits? Um, also, we actually worked out the Worth system so that you could not only improve, but you could lower your station. And you could go all the way down to uh, house embarrassment, house humiliation, all the way down to uh, house sacrifice. And we based this on what happened to Dritzt in mm-hmm. Homeland, so that you could see how he kept losing worth points by being a good guy. Until at the end of the book, he had lost so many worth points that he was going to be sacrificed by malice. Mm-hmm. And so I had yeah, that's a, actually. A, that's actually a section of the book that I'm I'm really pleased with how that turned out. There's a sidebar yeah. in the Worth section that, that actually follows the novels and shows you point by point how Thrist rises in, in society and then his dramatic fall into disgrace. So I thought that was pretty cool. That was, that was a one, lot that, of post-it notes. That was one of the first things as I did my initial flip through that caught my eye and I had to stop and, and actually read through in a little bit more detail is, is sort of following that story and seeing how – not you know how he you know be, partially because of course he he as a character didn't care about his worth in that society, exactly, and just uh, threw it away and the things that he did and how that played into the mechanics of what it is that you that you were creating. Well, the other uh, side of this is the worth and station is for your individual, but another fun part of being a drow is the house system, and. One of the uh, Brian came up with a very ingenious way of how to approximate 
your house house power. And you want to discuss that, Brian? Uh, I don't know if it's ingenious, but yeah, it's. Uh, it was ingenious. <laughs> one of the things, uh, going back to uh, uh, guidance from on high, one of the first th- things that Chris uh, Perkins mentioned is that they wanted um, us to have the ability to uh, generate drow houses, right? Um, because Menzo Barons in society has a bunch of, uh, you know, has about. 20 or more fairly well-known drow society or drow houses um, for those that read the novels. But the point is we wanted this book to have a lot of utility uh, for people that uh, don't even necessarily play in Menzo Berenson, right? If they, if they have their own drow city and their own custom campaign, uh, or if they're playing in the vault of the drow and Greyhawk, um, we want it to be equally useful. So uh, with that in mind, um, I needed a way to allow players to create their own drow houses and um kind of going back a little old school um there's a section in the in the menzo barons and book that you can either use percentile dice to just randomly uh create your house on the fly um or if you want to be more meticulous about it you can um pick and choose the uh the abilities uh, individually, but basically each house is broken down into things like uh, how powerful they are militarily, uh, how high is their favor, uh, which is like their divine fervor with uh, law, um, how wealthy they are, um, those sorts of things. And um, Don't count that second one out. What was the second one? Uh, favor. Oh, the favor of Loth. Uh, favor yes. of Loth. Uh, Loth will smash your opponent for you. Mm, oh, good exactly. times. Well, yeah. If you, yeah, because each house has different traits. If you actually have the zealous trait, you get fifty points of favor, which is pretty significant. So mm-hmm. you don't even have to be on the ruling council, but if you have Loth's favor, um, as House de Worden did as they were rising up in the ranks, um, that goes very, very far. So. Um, so yeah, as you look through the book, you'll see, you'll see that each house is a, so each uh, of the established houses is assigned in a power ranking, which shows their relative power uh, against one another. But um, uh, DMs are strongly encouraged to create their own houses, um, and uh, perhaps or have their uh, players affect their house standing and and powers. Exactly. Well, and and the book, if anything. Um, sort of exemplifies the idea of, sure, this is all based on an established setting, but you're playing in it. Feel free to go in and and blow it up and, and mess it up and destroy the cannon and do whatever you want with it. Absolutely. Um, you know, and you, and, that came through. And, and, well, and you see it a lot because, I mean, you're encouraging people to play in in multiple eras of of the, the city. And it's hard to play in, you know, an era in, in the founding of the city and not have an impact and change the canon, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's your realms. That's right. Or Do whatever. Do as you please. Or wherever you want to put it. Mm-hmm. Now, you, I'm curious on the, the house system. Um, how exactly is a DM going to use that in their campaign? How would you, you sort of, other than creating their own house, say they're going to play Menzer Branzan as it exists, um, using the information in this book, how does that then become useful? Yeah. Well, one of the thoughts is is that, well, I guess it depends on your type of campaign, right? We, we list, and I kind of have the book, I'm flipping through it right now. I think somewhere in the book we list different types of campaigns you can run. Some are more intrigue-based, some are more uh, full-on warfare-based. But um, certainly in an intrigue-based campaign, um, it's possible that... Um, that all of the players in your party are a, m- a member of the same house and they are working collectively to dethrone one of the houses ahead of them. Um, so obviously that's important, right? If if um, if you want to be on the ruling council and only the top eight houses can be on the ruling council, um, then if your party collectively works together to discredit the houses above you, um, they'll fall out of favor with law and, and you basically effectively take over their position. So that's one way. Um, another thing that was kind of interesting that Eric and I had discussed is what happens if you have party members of different houses? Or um, some of the party members might not even be drow at all, right? They could be slaves um, 
or uh, informants uh, working for an outside faction. Um, so in that case, um, it's conceivable that um, you're secretly trying to raise your own house's faction um, all the while you're, you have your party dynamics to deal with. Um, you know, you, you want to succeed in whatever your goal is. Like, uh, you as a party have, or, you know, someone in the city, someone high up, let's say Gumpf Bainray, the Archmage, has discovered that there is an illithid enclave outside the city that's trying to uh, mind and slave a bunch of uh, noble priestesses. And so he forms this ragtag collection of drow together to go thwart them, right? So you have that as a common goal, right? But at the same time, as you are collectively trying to uh, thwart the the Sept of Ilgacht, which is a new Illithid faction we introduced in the book, um, you still individually... <laughs> yeah, you still individually want to promote your house. You want your individual house to gain favor over the others. Mm -hmm. So... It's conceivable that you might do something to backstab, uh, not necessarily literally, but you might actually discredit one of your own party members in some manner in order to gain faction yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where the worth or the uh, the drow faction cards, what do they call the treachery deck, comes into play. Um, it's kind of interesting because my brother Matt was actually commissioned to work on the treachery deck at the very beginning, this, at the same time while we were working on this source book. Um, so that the thought there was that you could make minor acts of treachery that would, um, benefit you individually, um, but would have an adverse effect on those around you. Um, and of course those were released separately as fortune cards or something, but the, the mechanic ties back into the worth system as described in the book. The, uh, another way to use the house system is if you have maybe a more conventional campaign that you're surface dwellers and of the standard core races that if you're trying to deal with the, the drow of Menzo Berenson that are doing their standard uh, standard uh, hunt and revel, which the surfacers define as hunting and uh, killing and pillaging, um, which drow houses involved in this would determine what sort of resources they have available to do the raids on the surface and how they would go about doing it. So if they're a much more militaristic faction, you would see their raids would be more uh, a lot of fighter-type characters and might be looking to find uh, to do raids to capture people and uh, for slaves and to collect gold and other treasure. Whereas if it was a more mercantile house, they might be trying to trade with the uh, people of the surface lands. And, of course, uh, the trade with the drow has always got quotes around it. Um, so they might have a much different way of hunt of pillaging the surface by these merchants uh, show up from the drow city and they want to buy the slaves. Or they will uh, then release the, the, the hunting and the pillaging. So it could uh, feed into a more convention, uh, conventional campaign that is not based in Menzer Berenzon as well. And uh, you you brought up the idea that the one of the campaign concepts that the the book reinforces is the intrigue um, style campaign, which is like evil campaigns, notoriously <laughs> difficult to do. Um, because if you're overly subtle, your players just never pick up on anything. Uh, or, and if you're overly complex, they just completely forget what may end, up, may end up being very important. And when you do the big aha reveal, they're like, uh, what? I don't remember any of that. Right? Um, but you, can have, you, you actually lay out some very good um, advice on how to build an intrigue-based campaign um, without necessarily making it overwhelming. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? That's all I'm yours, trying Brian. to remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I wrote that section, but it's it's been you know obviously a year since I wrote sure. it. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, what's interesting is at the time, um, um, though we were scheduled to write 160 pages, um, it always seemed like we never had enough page count. Um, so 
Um, the intrigue uh, section, uh, I would have loved to have, have been much larger than it is. I'm kind of looking through it right now, and I think it's like, what, six or so pages long, six or eight pages. Mm-hmm. Um, Was it so, about 12? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a little bit. Some of it's taken up by the history of the city. but um, So, yeah, we would have loved to have provided more examples on that. Um, and then, as you can see, the actual book turned out to be less than 160. So. Sure. No, and that's one of the things I was going to say is that there was some great advice in there. I kind of wish I had more because that's so hard to do. Yeah. Um, the more help we can get, the better in all kinds of different things. Like, like for example, how would you rec- would you recommend different styles of party building? Like, should the DM, you know, is there one style of campaign where the DM says, "Everybody make a character. You all have to be part of this house." And if you're all part of different houses, maybe it's one of two or three houses. Because if you get too far, that's they're now creating way too many factions to really incorporate well into the campaign, right? Yeah, I do seem to vaguely remember saying something to the effect of that, suggesting to the DM that they should limit the number of factions mm-hmm. uh, to two or three or so, because because you're exactly right. The the more factions you have in play, um, I remember you saying no difficult. more than five. But yeah, that's all up to the DM's personal style, right? Mm-hmm. Some DMs are, you know, that's easier for them to maintain the, that level of intrigue versus others, but. Um, yeah, definitely want to keep it manageable because not only do you have drow houses to deal with, you know, we also describe different factions, you know, that are both internal to the city and external to the city. So um, keeping track of the internal threats versus the houses themselves can be daunting. And yeah, I would have loved to have spent more time um, describing that. I think one of the things that was on my mind at the time that also limited the number of pages was that um, Rob Schwab was working on the Book of Vile Darkness at the time. Hmm. And so my, I think my presumption was is that we didn't want to give too much generic advice because, because it would be covered in that book itself. Um, but you're right. It would have been nice to have had a little bit more page count dedicated specifically to handling these situations in a drow-themed campaign. I wanted more pages on the city. That's a good yeah, question. Well, we wanted more pages everywhere. We, I think, with the very, I think, what a week in or two weeks in, we send an email back to Chris Perkins, going, "Can we bump this up to 196 pages or mm-hmm. anything large?" Because it just seemed like it was never enough. Um, we started to cover 240, and then we uh, backed down to 190. Yeah, and, and then it's he inter- threatened to stop responding to our emails. <laughs> <laughs> And it's interesting because because it is a very thin book um, compared to some of the others on the shelf. Uh, but at yes. the same time, it is probably one of the most text and information dense books uh, because being edition proof also means that it's very mechanic light. And so you know, a lot of times those stat blocks and and uh, power you know entries and all that kind of stuff take up a lot of space um, yes. that that you don't have in there. So there's a lot of stuff in here. It's very uh, it's a very in-depth sort of read. Um, there are moments where I was going through it and I, and I felt like, you know, this is really great and detailed information that when I'm not running a campaign in this setting right now, it's a little bit like going through a textbook, you know, because it's just that sort <laughs> gotcha. of I- informative detail. Sorry. Yeah, it's <laughs> – well, yeah, I mean obviously um, I actually – you know, I did the I, – I was reading – you know, forum comments, obviously. I know a lot of designers don't choose to do that because that could be a mixed bag. Sure. But, um, you know, some people um, uh, didn't like the concept that this book had no mechanics in it, um, other than, you know, the station and the worth system, as mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier. But, Which are self-contained um, mechanic systems. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the point was is we didn't want any fourth edition specific mechanics in right. this book. Um, but as a... As a lore wonk as I am, uh-huh. um, um, I, lo- I actually love the way that it turned out. Yes, it can be very kind of lore heavy, um, obviously. Um, but as, you know, as I, I believe a lot of Forgotten Realms are, um, these, you know, we really wrote this book um, to kind of cater to those that really want as much detail about this city as possible. So you're right. We kind of jam-packed it full of you know a detailed history of the mm-hmm. city um of course you know if it was up to us we only listed like what 
five or six drow houses and three or four factions. I mean, we wanted obviously so much more, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, well, you I, work with what you're yeah, given. Sure, sure. Tracy, you going to say? Oh, no, I was going to say that Jeff and I talked about it bef- before uh, before we called you guys. And I, and I was even mentioning people who were just getting into the novels or like the novels might even want it because of how much uh, concentrated lore there was in it. It took a lot of research. Yeah. Sure. Oh my Boy, heavens! It <laughs> yes, it did. Wait, I, when I was writing, I literally had stacks of you know, stacks of books all around me, trying to make sure I was cross-referencing everything correctly. Uh, when I sent my documents over to uh, Brian, uh, used the comment feature on Word mm-hmm. to track where our to basically footnote our work, because then we can uh, accept all change. You delete the comments out. It's really easy to get rid of than having to hunt down footnotes. Um, and literally, there would be like what fifty to sixty comments a page. Mm-hmm. With yeah, it's a week. I got all of the information so that he could go back and look through it and make sure that I was pulling things up correctly. There was a lot of research on this. Sure. And and does that mean you also had? Um extra knowledge about things coming up in in some of these time settings that that have not been detailed yet you know so, uh, so that you didn't you know list that you know so and so died at such and such a time and it turned out that you know somebody was going to use that character later on and they weren't really dead all along uh we were not given any privileged information because oh, uh, really what i'm trying to ask is do you know where Jal axel is <laughs> <laughs> That would be a darn uh, fine question. <laughs> so, so interestingly enough, I mean, I guess this is a little bit some background information, but it might be interesting to your readers. But um, as Eric and I were uh, working on this book, and we already mentioned, we started working on this like late September, early October of last year. Um, uh, we were completely unaware of the entire rise of the Underdark theme. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we... Yeah, so we had no clue that that was happening. Uh, we had no clue um, that uh, Bob Salvatore was writing a new novel that was going to take the characters back to Menzo Berenson. Um We found out eventually, <laughs> but unfortunately it was near the end of the deadline. Um, so yeah, it would have been nice to have a little bit more uh, advanced knowledge of kind of some of that stuff, but that's uh, Wizards is just very protective of... Of, uh, I think people would be surprised on how protective they are, um, even when dealing with freelancers. Um, there isn't a whole lot that they tell us freelancers uh, that is privileged beyond what they tell the public. They just let you write what you want, and then if it conflicts, fix it themselves? That that actually is pretty much how it works. Sure. Yes. Okay. Sorry we can't help you on that one. I just want to <laughs> know where he is. He's like my favorite character in, in the Drist world. <laughs> He is pretty awesome. <laughs> um, we, uh, yeah, but uh, we did the. This did give us a lot of opportunity to, you know, explore other things like uh, uh, the Sept of Ilgacht. We got to have some fun with that. Yeah, a lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the factions were, I think, um, the highlights to me because it was it wasn't just me getting more information or a bunch of information about some of the things that I'd already heard of, but it was me getting new information about things that maybe we didn't know that much about or were just brand new. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was definitely a guiding principle as we were going through. I mean, we didn't want to completely just regurgitate. That would be doing a disservice to anybody that has bought the prior products, right? So we definitely wanted to be respectful of the prior lore, but we also wanted to introduce things that were, that would be, uh, new and surprising for people that are familiar with the novels um, and have an intimate knowledge of all things drow. We wanted there to still be some new nuggets that would be fun for them as well. One of my uh, favorite bits was Fon uh, Linksel, which was the uh, Alithid's uh, home base that they have rebuilt, where you actually can, uh, as one of the suggested adventures we had, is uh, you can find the uh, still-living brain of L. Viddenvelp. 
so he himself is dead, but the Elithids have figured out how to keep their brain, uh, brains alive in a brain canister to take back and add to the elder brain at their, uh, uh, at their layers. I got that one out of the was it second edition book that discussed uh, that introduced the Lithiad. Yes, yes. Where they introduced the idea of brain canisters, I said, "Ooh, here's an entire adventure." So the party finds a brain canister that has the still living brain of L. Vittenvelp inside of it. And Can for people imagine? that aren't familiar, he's he was the advisor to Matron. Uh, Bane Ray in the in the Driss series of novels, so he has a uh, quite a bit of influence over the first family of Menzo Barons, and he served them for decades. Just imagine all of the information that he would have. That if you could talk telepathy with this brain, you could get. So I just had the ideas of like, oh, the PCs could like auction this brain off to the highest bidder. They could try to promise it to one family while uh, you know trying to uh, you know do private auctions to the various houses. As soon as uh, House Boehner finds out about it, they're going to come after it. The uh, Lithids, when they find out you have it, they're going to want to get their Elvidenvelp's brain back. So just finding this one package creates, oh, so many weeks of fun gaming. Plus, plus, everybody is after you. Plus you get an NPC who's literally a brain in a jar. Yes, indeed. Exactly. <laughs> So those were the little things that we tried to slip in there as much as possible. Cool. So here's going back to my um, my high school days and some of the debates I used to have with my friends as we were reading through some of the uh, the drown novels. Um, and and maybe you can explain your take on it and how you rectify these things um, in the in the book. Loth is a very much chaos based god. Whereas mm-hmm. Minzo Branzan and the Drow of Minzo Branzan oftentimes don't feel real chaotic. Everything is very structured, very much delineated, exactly what the rules are and, and how they affect you know things like your station and your worth and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do we rectify those two things? The idea that there's a, there's a very structured civilization that is completely dedicated to a god of chaos. I remember us discussing this, Eric. I don't know if it actually made it into the book, but actually the answer, I don't remember if it was in the purple box set or maybe it was like the third edition Drow of the Underdark. But It was in the it, Drow of the Underdark. Yeah, it's. I don't, do you remember the exact answer? It's explained. Mm-hmm. That contradiction is explained. Yep. Uh, the answer is um, Lolf. How on earth can a chaotic, evil drow society survive? And the answer that was put forward by Ed Greenwood in uh, the old Drow Underdark book was, it can't. It would have murdered itself into oblivion long ago. <laughs> right. um, which is So the only thing that really keeps it the way it is, is Lolf. As a chaotic, evil demon, the drow of Minzo Berenson are exactly what she wants them to be. Um, they basically are constantly tap dancing to try dancing to her tune, and she changes that tune all the time without without warning, capriciously, just changes so that everyone has to scramble and try to dance to the new tune. Um, I, I saw her as like the ultimate mean girl. <laughs> With her groups, with all of her clinic, and she forced all of her matron mothers to do exactly what she says and order them around. And they, of course, have their little cliques, which are their houses, that they boss around. So while it's all about um, me, uh, is basically what the uh, drought society comes down to, is it's all about me, but uh, they, you can't offend anyone stronger and more powerful than you in the pecking order or you'll offend them and so that and then you will get hurt mm-hmm. because menzo barons on justice is very much a might makes right or oh you annoyed the wrong person pow so the uh, contradiction of individually they are very chaotic but their society is set up 
with a veneer of laws and justice that are all the capricious whim of a demon of a demon goddess. Sure. Well, and it's often, at least in my interpretation, it's often in the way that the the people in power can manipulate people's perceptions of that demon goddess, whether it's actually the will of that demon goddess or not. You know, mm-hmm. what does does Matron Bainray always have lost favor? Maybe she does, maybe she doesn't. But as long as you think she does, she can make you do whatever she wants. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're going to run a good Benzo Branzo. <laughs> well, and, and, and you bring up a good point. I don't have any plans of, in running a Benzo Branzo game anytime soon. Um, but this is the kind of book that, because it's systemless and so packed full of lore, it's the kind of book that sits, will sit on my shelf. And in five years, 10 years, 15 years, when I do run a, a campaign like that, I'll be able to pull off and it'll, it'll have everything I need ready to go. It's it's sort of one of those ageless things. Sort of, you know, I ran a one to thirty Forgotten Realms uh, campaign over the last several years, and I found myself going back to my second and third edition Forgotten Realms books, oftentimes just looking for little bits of lore to pull out and and, and throw in there and, and that kind of thing. And this is the well, kind of yes. book that's going to be perfect for that. I hope we did all that for you. Yeah, we pulled all <laughs> the lore we could and put it in one place. Anything that's not in the book that you wish was in the book. That you that you worked on and, and it got cut, or that you didn't just didn't have quite time enough time to develop, or in hindsight you wish you had you had added in. Uh, for my own part, um, one of the one of the sections that got cut um, involved um, the drow deities. Um, so a little background history for those that may not be familiar with it. Um, uh, traditionally, going back to first edition, uh, Loth has been the preeminent deity of the Drow. Okay, um, uh, and singular in that respect. Um, but in the Forgotten Realms, um, up until fourth edition, um, there was an entire pantheon of Drow deities. Um, whereas the Elven pantheon was known as the Seldarine, uh, the Drow pantheon were sometimes called the Anti-Seldarine. Um, so there were Loths, um, uh, even in the Forgotten Realms, there's an entire backstory, right? So Loth used to actually be a divine, uh, uh deity known as Aranshi. Um, she was a deity of fate, uh, the weaver, um, and she ultimately betrayed her husband, Coralon, um, and was banished, um, to the abyss and transformed into a demon, okay? Um, but before that happened, she had two children uh, with Coralon, um, Elastrei and Veru. Okay, these are twin boys and girls. Um, and when Loth was banished, um, Veru was banished as well. And while technically Elastrei, um, being the good-hearted daughter, um, was not banished uh, by Coralon, she decided to uh, go with her mother of her own accord. Okay. Um, and then after Loth turned into a demon, um, she uh, acquired, you know, other de- uh, divine followers and created her own pantheon of sorts. Um, all of that um, came to a dramatic end at the end of third edition. So about five years ago or so, there was a trilogy of novels uh, known as the Lady Penitent series in which one by one, each of the uh, drow deities was systematically killed off, okay, until Loth was the only one left standing. Um, To a lot of Forgotten Realms fans, that was a very heavy-handed thing to do, right? Um, Particularly the death of the good drow deity, Elastray, was kind of uh, difficult for a lot of people to swallow um, because... One of the things that a lot of people like about the Forgotten Realms is there's lots of shades of gray. And the, the, the thought that all drow have to be completely evil uh, doesn't sit well with some people. And, of course, you have Drista Warden as an example of a person that rebelled against his nature. Um, so anyway, with the guiding principle that this Menzo Barons and Sourcebook was to be edition neutral um, and time period neutral... Um, we focused uh, the, on the, when we were writing the deity section, um, we included 
um, the other deities as well. If you have the book in front of you now, you'll notice that the deity section pretty much only talks about law. Um, and we wrote quite a bit about Elastrae and Veyrune, uh, her uh, twin uh, son and daughter. Um, and we came up with a compelling um, explanation of how uh, Veyrune and Elastrae could still live on in the modern realms uh, for those fans that wanted to uh, continue using them. And basically what we said is that um, at the conclusion of that novel series, um, what they effectively did is they gave up their divinity. Um, um, I, it's kind of hard to describe without giving away spoilers mm -hmm. of the novel series, but needless to say, uh, we wanted to return them to their pre-divine state as they existed um, before Loth was banished. And that is basically as uh, powerful fey or as arc fey as they're mm -hmm. described in fourth edition terms. Sure. Um, so we did a whole lot of research and we kind of, you know, went back and forth for weeks and weeks coming up with this intricate backstory. And then ultimately it got cut out of the book. So it's a, it's a little disappointing, but um, obviously we understand that when the, as you're as freelancers, you know, Wizards of the Coast obviously has full editorial control over sure. the book. And uh, so, you know, but, things happen. Right? But that would be an interesting thing to do and then be able to create, you know, like things like uh, Warlock packs and, and that kind of stuff tied to those to those uh, beings as well yes i think exactly. you i think you should totally tell Watsy Watsi you'd like to do that for uh <laughs> dungeon or dragon i still do hold out hope that they might release that material as uh web enhancements or something that they release with D, &D insider mm -hmm. um because in it addition so to this cool yeah because eric uh, actually put a lot of work um in addition to doing describing the deities themselves um we actually created an entirely new faction for the city, which is basically, um, um, I don't remember exactly. How did we pronounce that faction? Do you remember? Oh, uh, Arldeth Aldrain? Yeah. See, now, you, want to describe now, now, now you maybe want to rethink, Miss, Mr. Uh, fantasy creator setting guy, that maybe your names <laughs> need to be a little more pronounceable. Well, well it's, it's an elvish like name, right? From uh, the Drowl uh, lexicon. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'll blame that. Hold on a second. I'm going to pull it up now. <laughs> well, while he's looking that up, that actually reminds me of something else that, that didn't make it in the final book. That's a little unfortunate. But um, there are a lot of Drowl terms scattered throughout the book. And mm -hmm. one of the things that we included in our final turnover was a complete, well, I shouldn't say complete, but. A, very, a fairly exhaustive uh, uh, glossary of terms, sure. um, of drow terms, um, not only their, their definitions, but how to properly pronounce them. Oh, geez. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we spent quite a bit of time working on that. And unfortunately, it didn't make it in the final product. That's hard to uh, do. I, I, th I think there's been a few drow words I've heard the two of you say differently in the course of this interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, my, no my, not possible. I, I say like that. I say House Bane Ray, and Eric says Boehner. And uh, uh, I say Menzo Baronson, and other people pronounce it Menzo Baronson. Or, so, yeah, there's many different ways to mm -hmm. pronounce it. At least we're all saying drow. Well, yeah, but you'd be surprised how many there's, people there's no, still there's, refer there's to no it silly, as drow. There's no silly drow people out there anymore. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're, we're beyond that. <laughs> What's interesting is I think in the uh, the world of Galarian for Pathfinder, they they actually have officially declared that they are pronounced Dro. So I think that's kind of funny. Well, it's a little bit like the the mole mule conversation from Dark Sun, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and in the fourth edition version, they they actually made a thing of it. You know that one one is the is the the proper one, and the other one is derogatory. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm still a mule guy myself. I am too. I, I, in fact, I played a mule uh, in in I think at Gen Con when that when that book came out. I played a mule and I referred to myself as a mule. And everybody's like, "No, it's supposed to be supposed to be mole." I'm like, "Hey, no, 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 we're taking it back." That's right. <laughs> well, it's cool, baby. <laughs> anyway, it was um, one of the things I particularly liked about it is it tied in the uh, heroes of the Feywild. Oh, yeah. Into the series as well, and it gave us a uh, Fey angle with which to work with Menzo Baronson. Of course, I wonder if that's not part of why it it was questionable to be in, be, being that not every edition 
incorporates the Fey and the Feywild in the same way. And they weren't quite sure maybe where they're going to go with it with the next edition, too. No, that, that's hmm. quite conceivable. But that the Feywild did exist in prior editions of the Forgotten Realms. It was sure. just known as Fairy at the time. Right. But it's effectively the same exact location. Very good. Founder Jazra Chalzen. Yeah, that's true. So there is a Ardril El- in the book. Ardril There it is. Ardril Eraldane. That's right. Ardril The Court of the Ever-Changing Moon. Essentially, they were my... If you wanted to go with a different uh, style of campaign, you could... If you wanted to be a good guy in Menzo Berenzon, they were here to be the uh, resistance fighters. Mm. The ones who are trying to spirit out the good drow and find them, uh, you know, lives uh, on the surface. But if you did that, if you had that, then you'd have to have a whole new section to sort of helping me create a good campaign in an evil, in an evil setting. Well, that's Brian's job. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I mean, they even mentioned that in the uh, uh, the Lady Penitent series that the uh, was it the town of Rye Manthalin was being used by uh, was being settled by the uh, people that were redeemed by Illustrae sacrifice. Yeah, spoiler! It's been around for twenty years. The book's been out <laughs> for ten years. You have to deal with that. And so they were be so we just kind of piggybacked on that one. And the whole idea is that these were like I I kind of felt the illustrate got kinda of out of hand somewhere in second edition, maybe third edition, where there like seemed to be like good drow priestesses everywhere. <laughs> and well, everybody wanted to play dressed. Well, why not? He's <laughs> awesome. Um but we needed so we needed to tap that way back. So this was like uh I think there were Total seventy-four members of this uh, faction mm-hmm. against the thousands that live in Menzo Baranzon, and uh, so you—it was very much a secret cell kind of thing. The Drow had a you know number one priority to hunt you down and kill you. You would gain lots of favor for Loth. So if you were playing an evil uh, evil campaign as Drow, well, who's going to be your enemy? The ostensibly good guys. Mm-hmm. So you had the goal of hunting these drow down, these uh, traitors to Lolth down, and sacrificing them on her altar, and that mm-hmm. would give you massive bonuses for your worth. Or if you wanted to play the other way, if you wanted to be the good guy working against impossible odds, you could be part of this organization and trying to help those that uh, are trying to escape the oppression of the Lolth society. Or you could be a conflicted angst muffin. <laughs> and feel the need to escape and you don't know what to do and then there's this agent here who's whispering good aligned things to you but Lolth is telling you bad things and she's in charge and you don't know what to do oh I mean it's very flexible cool we are quickly approaching an hour I wanted to give everybody one last chance to ask any questions or uh, say any last things you wanted to say about the book Tracy any last questions Nope, I'm all set. Okay, anything you guys want to let people know about? Encourage people to get out there and get it? One more thing to sell? That map. The, the map, map is spectacular. That, uh, that, uh, the, uh, was it Mike Schell? Mike Schley. Schley did. is fantastic. We have come a long way from uh, uh, the painted bed sheet that uh, Ed turned in <laughs> with the original purple box set. Um, it is three-dimensional. Well, th- it's isometric, so you're looking at it from the side. You can see how it's a city of uh, elevations. It goes up and down. There's rifts. There's um, columns. There's lagmites. There's lactites. One side of it has all the markings on it the, so that the judge can know where everything is. And the other side is plain and can be used by the uh, uh, players. It is a work of art. One of the best maps I've seen. And and it is – well, it is fantastic. It did surprise me as I went through the book how few maps there were from something produced by Brian R. James. Uh, I know that Brian is a big map fan. Oh, I am. Yeah, that that, that once again came down to the art order allotment we had. Um, Yeah, I I actually submitted an art order that had a bunch of maps uh, surrounding Menzo Berenzin uh, describing – um, 
We actually had some maps of a temple beneath the Lake uh, Donna Garden. Um, yeah, there was a bunch of maps that unfortunately didn't make it into the final product. I'm so. surprised 90% of Brian James's art orders weren't maps. <laughs> yeah. That's because he made that's because he made me do them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I love maps. The, the, the art order, that is. Yeah, yeah. Because he was uh, editing everything furiously. I was like, yeah, I'll do the art order for you. Because <laughs> the poor guy had to go through all my stuff. Very good. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thanks thank you so much for having us. Any, anywhere that people should go to, to find you on the interwebs? Links I should include? Uh, the usual spot. I guess I'm at uh, Twitter at Brian R. James. That's the best place to find me. And mine is probably through my webcomic. I am the uh, publishing a webcomic called Snow by Night, which is uh, fantasy adventures on the colonial frontier. Think of Three Musketeers crossed with Last of the Mohicans. Okay. And people can nice. find that at what address? Snowbynight.com. And it's N-I-G-H-T. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you. All righty. Thank you. And now before we go, we need to mention our other sponsor of the episode, Noble Knight, a gaming store in both the real world and the digital. They specialize in finding you things that are out of print and giving them to you for a reasonable price. Our pick for this episode is the Menzo Baranzan box set mentioned earlier in this episode extensively and used heavily for the inspiration for this book, uh, available in, no, at Noble Knight in various forms for 40 ish to $45. Not bad for something that's been out of print for, well, since 1992. <laughs> that's a long time. Yeah. Definitely. Noble Knight Games has been serving the needs of thousands of gamers worldwide since 1997. With a huge selection of over 30,000 unique products, including discounts on most in-print games of up to 50% off or more. Noble Knight Games is the place for out-of-print RPGs, board games, war games, collectible card games, miniatures, and all things game-related. They ship worldwide and will purchase or trade your titles you no longer need, new, or used. Your satisfaction is guaranteed. Just visit www.noblenight.com or visit our website for direct access to thousands of new, out-of-print, and in some cases, one-of-a-kind items. But we'd like to say thank you to our sponsors, Continue Magazine and Noble Knight, as well as our guests, Brian R. James and Eric Mendy. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at thetomeshow.com. Call into the Tomes Bizline at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And you can find links to various things discussed in the show in the show notes at thetomeshow.com. And that is episode 205, where I've played a proper drow, dominating cruel seductress, and allowed the men to do all the work for me. <laughs> and that is the real power behind the podcast as we reviewed Men's of Ranzen in this episode of The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone, The Tone. I'm on the wall.